Hey, Elliot. Hey, Brian. What's the talk at the table? This week, we're sitting down with Caleb Zane Hewitt and Sean Ireland, co-founders of Haunted Table Games. Caleb is the lead designer and creative director of Triangle Agency, a professional GM and author of several books for middle schoolers, including Top Elf, The Buster Series, and an upcoming series of Minecraft chapter books. Sean is a designer on Triangle Agency and the creator of the live show, The Hero Is You, The Improvised Adventure. And together, they are the co-founders of Haunted Table Games, Caleb and Sean... Welcome to the show. How are you guys doing? Hello. Thank, thank you for you having so us much. on. Thank you for being here. So, you know, Brian and I have been keeping an eye on you guys, I guess, from afar for a while uh, since Triangle Agency first came across our radar. And ever since your Kickstarter, we knew we wanted to have a conversation with you, wanted to sit down and talk to you about this smash hit of a success that you guys have had. So first, I want to say congratulations on all the success on the Triangle Agency Kickstarter. It is so well-deserved. You guys clearly put so much work into it, and I can't wait to play the game. Thank um, you. So first that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I just want to say, I remember when I first saw this game, first off, when like Triangle Agency started to hit like Twitter and like social media, it was so prevalent. I just assumed that it was a game I just missed, not a game <laughs> upcoming. <laughs> and then and then uh elliot and i will like you know chat back and forth whenever we see something cool we'll be like oh did you see this oh did you see this and he sent me oh did you see this triangle agency thing and we looked through the the kickstarter together and immediately sent back and forth the same text of like this is the best kickstarter campaign we've ever seen uh, that's so sweet of you to say thank you bar thank none you. absolutely i mean it's it's not sweet it's just true and we've backed a lot. I mean, we're both spendthrifts when it comes to TTRPGs. So mm -hmm. absolutely with that, if you call that expertise. Um, but before we get into the crowdfunding of it all, for anybody who's listening who might not know, can you tell us what Triangle Agency is? Yes, yes. Triangle Agency is a tabletop role-playing game. Welcome to this particular show. <laughs> uh, about... Uh, about uh, you playing as agents of a mysterious, powerful corporation that is dedicated to the capturing and study of anomalies um, that are uh, similar to what you would see in something like the SCP Foundation, things that have broken into our reality based on an especially strong feeling, concept, idea, and need to be contained before they uh, destroy various parts of the world or the world as a whole. We describe it as being paranormal investigation and corporate horror. And uh, it's in an all new game system that uh, obviously, like all games, is uh, inheriting and learning a lot from the games in the scene right now and that have come before, but that is not part of a very specific lineage. We have done a lot to make this game try to be very precise and uh, tied to the story that we're trying to tell with it. So I know that there's a particular video game franchise that was an inspiration, but I want to I'm more curious about the answer to this question. What inspired you to say we need to make this a game? We need to make this game. Oh, I, I would say I don't know if for me there was ever any one point where it was like, oh, and the spark is lit because the genesis of this came from I mean, my experience, Caleb and I just shooting ideas back and forth, making one another laugh impressing one another with new ideas and that process lasted for about two years until at one point we realized oh my god we have so much momentum i guess we got to do it <laughs> yeah i i that's that's exactly what it was like i think the a story that i've told before that i think is still apt 
is Sean and I had been like tossing it back and forth lightly over the course of a year where like we would sit down to to talk about it. And sometimes we would, sometimes instead we would get online and play a video game. Um, you know, <laughs> so we, we weren't, we were not very consistent about it, but there was a point where I was trying to like get all my stuff organized. And I, I came to Sean with this big grand plan where I was like, look, Sean, my next year is going to be so amazing. I'm going to write a, I'm going to work on this book on Mondays. I'm going to work on this book on Tuesdays. I'll work on Triangle Agency on Wednesday. So like, don't worry, like I'll do some work on it. Uh, and then the second I got to my first day on Triangle Agency from that like plan, that that very first week, by the end of that time, it was like, oh, I have to put all of the rest of this aside. <laughs> like, this is actually what I'm going to spend time on now. Uh, and so none of those other books got written, but this one, this one is. <laughs> that is really a moment of like, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so you launched the Kickstarter in June, but obviously it didn't start with the Kickstarter. There was a long journey beforehand that occupied more days than you thought it would. Talk, talk to me about the Delta test and and how you started there and and why you started there and, and how that came to be. Yeah, you know, I'm actually trying to remember exactly what the beginning was. We had been compiling the rules through uh, Notion online, just like in a variety of different pages. And it wasn't until we... We knew we were going to try to get it out before PAX Unplugged because we wanted to do a game there with Plus One EXP that we realized, like, okay, we have to really get this into demo-ready mode. And I think before that, before the event, before Tony from Plus One invited us to come do a game with them, I'm not even sure that we had any deadline in mind or were, were going to be getting it done at that speed at all. And then all of a sudden, that got locked in in like November one or something. And then PAX was like December one. So the entire Delta test as it is, was like written and laid out and built in that month. We had had all the rules built, but the actual text was like drafted and then put on page during that month, which I don't recommend. It's not, I was going to say that sounds really like a relaxing pace. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Super chill. <laughs> not, not stressful at all. It was, the parts of it that were very cool were that pressure and like the fact that we were trying to get it done within a particular amount of time meant that we weren't planning so far ahead that we were over outlining ourselves. Something that I like to talk about is that the second part of it, the the GM's guide, introduces this whole new character. And that came from a like very natural process during the drafting where we were talking about how we wanted to handle the the GM side of the manual had been writing the player side. And then I came to Sean one day saying, like, I'm trying to draft stuff for the GM's guide and it's not working. Like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work because I, I cannot make our in-universe concept make any sense if you're trying to tell people to be good at, at playing the game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so we, we, through conversations about that, we're able to hit on like, okay, then we can give it a different voice. We can bring in this other character. And now it's a huge part of the game, an enormous part of the final game. And it came from a like storytelling necessity in that rush. <laughs> and I'll say that's my favorite part of the reading through the Delta test materials was when I got to that second voice, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, this is this this has piqued my interest in a very unique way, in a very fun way. And like, I felt like by the time you've, if you're thinking, coming at this from a GM's perspective, by the time you've read through the player's side and then you get to that, you're sort of ready to be surprised in that way. And then it happens and it's like, oh, 
delightful. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that absolutely that introduction of a second voice is one of the coolest aspects of of that de- those Delta test documents having having read through them. What all did you know you had to get ready for the Delta test, or what all did you? What were the like minimum where you were like, we know we want to get this much out here because there's a lot in there. I will say, like it's a it's a pretty beefy document. Do you feel like you prepared too much? Do you feel like you prepared the right amount? Like what kind of what was your thought around that? No, I don't think we did too much. But what you see in the Delta test was at that point us really trying to just put the whole game out there. At, at that time, we had been working on it like totally solo. We had all of these like really, really big ideas. We really liked what we had built. That second voice, even though the actual character showed up kind of by surprise, the concepts there and the way we wanted to approach uh, GMing were there from the beginning. And the the fact that it was so big was as a result of me like not being willing to put it down at certain points. <laughs> and then because we really strongly felt and still feel that like one of the hardest parts of getting people to play your game is kind of earning their trust, like helping people understand that like not only will they probably have a good time by by, by the time that they play it, but that like you're already showing them what that good time might be like and they can see hopefully the, that you aren't hiding anything from them or pulling any tricks. That Delta mm. test was like, this is what we have. Like, this is all of it. Like, we're going to give it to you for free. We're going to not hide uh, anything here. There's more stuff we want to do. There's more stuff we have done since then. But it was all about trying to to build a bridge with a community that didn't know us yet. And so putting a lot of stuff in there was our best way to do that. I really like that you bring up that you have to like gain someone's trust to come in to play a game because I feel like we've found a similar thing with like actual play podcasts where like there's a million tabletop role playing games out there there's a million actual play podcasts out there you have to like so quickly establish like this is worth your time this is worth doing and the best way to do that is just put a lot of love and time and care into the thing so that from minute one from page one someone knows this was done with intention this was done well this was done with care And this was done thinking, you know, about the other, about the person who's going to be consuming this piece of media and not just throwing out their willy dilly. Yes. And I think what you're describing is a lot of the same stuff that goes into making good art anyway, like knowing who your audience is and like putting the time into it. Something that I'm very proud of and that I think we spend a lot of time talking about is trying to make sure that, um, trying to think of a good way to put this that doesn't sound too high concept because I Mm. don't think it is. It's more like, Everybody has so many things they can do at any given time. And if they don't see very quickly that you believe that this is worth their time, like if they don't see that that you thought you could put this much work in and and would get something out of it back, if they don't see that expectation from you even, then I don't think they have any reason to 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 meet it because it's not Mm -hmm. there. Um, So when we when we put stuff early on in the Delta test, that is like asking people to put a lot of like. When we're asking people to suspend your disbelief, not just in like, not just in like the normal ways, but in really direct and active ways, part of that conversation is about asking people early on, like, you can invest in this, like, (laughs) so please do. (laughs) And we promise we'll pay you back for that investment. There is a assuredness in the voice that you've brought to the game in the Delta test that I think does that sort of thing where I, and I was remarking to Brian after uh, reading through the Delta test that 
everything I was like everything's in fiction. I was like they did they did all the rules, all the like caveats and everything. It's all in fiction. It's great. It's delightful. I was like I love from a designer perspective, I love when games do that when they just like are like they're like we're pulling you into the fiction and we're going to we're going to keep you here and you're going to have a good time and you're going to enjoy the ride. Um so I think that's that speaks to that idea of like suspend your disbelief. It's like from the first line you're reading, you're like, "All right, I'm in this world and I'm going to I'm going to keep going within it." Yeah. I think something that has also helped us bridge that specific gap is one, you mentioned, you know, it feeling like it has the Delta test having an assured voice and, and, you know, you can, you know, feel confidence coming out of the document. I'm very flattered to hear you say that first of all, but second of all, it helps that the voice that is writing the document is a supremely confident being itself. You know, it Mm -hmm. is your boss telling you how to do your new job. And so there's A, that confidence, and B, that is what helps, what I've found helps me write, and people have told me it helps them read, is that's a language that people already speak. Like, everybody has had to be hired for a job for the most part. Everybody has had to read one of those agreements. In a way, we're meeting people halfway, even if in some instances, you know, that's not always a happy memory. It's, It's, you know, a language that people are familiar with. There's like an innate relatable comedy there. Yeah. And I want to say, like, at, at the risk of I don't want to at all suggest that we think, you know, putting something in universe or having that specific voice is how you make a text good. I think the the key thing is just knowing, thinking about your actual game and your text and thinking about what voice is good for it, because if it, there are going to be tons of games that are just going to be better in your voice coming from you, you know, in a direct way. And this one has characters and has this level of distance, but part of that is because the game is kind of about that. The game is about that distance, so we 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 needed that to hammer that stuff home. I do really love it though because it is such a great on ramp for game for both game masters and players. Like coming into any new game, no matter how game how many games you've played, can be tough, even if you really want to play it. But when you provide those kind of on ramps from like just reading the 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 rules and the manual you kind of already have like the vibe established and you can get rid of that vibe if you want, but also like those training wheels are there if you want them. Uh, and it's just such a great, it's just such a, uh, it's, I love when people, we, we've talked about this on other shows where we love games like 10 candles, where absolutely everything in that book is about setting the vibe games like wander home, where everything in there is about making sure you're set up to like live in this world. And I think this game does a great job of that as well, of just really putting you, at a great starting point and setting you up for success right out of the gate. That's so awesome to hear. I think if I was going to turn that at all into like a, a piece of advice or like a, a, a comment that could be useful is that like a lot of games completely uh, understandably because they know what their audience is kind of come with an implicit like reading list. Like this is mm-hmm. a heist game. And in order to do that, we're going to give you all the tools to do that, but you still have to already know what that is. One of our goals with this text was like, even if you've never engaged with any of our major influences, by the end of it, you can at least imagine what the world is and how to put yourself in it without having to, without needing any other texts, even if I think some of them would be very useful. (laughs) 100%. So uh, the people that you're building this bridge to, you mentioned like you wanted to reach into this community that didn't know you. And I think like in addition to reaching into a community, you probably in the process also found yourself building a community around the game. And I'm curious about your thoughts around community as one of your leading up like steps towards the Kickstarter. I could talk about this 
for an entire other episode. But <laughs> I like <laughs> we're 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 accidentally we're accidentally coming up against probably my like biggest like dangerous most hot take about tabletop role playing games. So get like you know buckle in I guess. But the I think especially when you're talking about games at scale. If you're talking about a large game or talking about a game that wants a big audience, what people are really looking for a lot of the time on top of a game that's very good and is going to be very fun and good at the table, what they're looking for is a vehicle for like maintaining and supporting friendships, like connections Mm. and friendships. So, so many of the games that are doing really well or have done really well come with them in the way that they communicate to you a promise of like, you can be confident this will continue to exist in two years. You can be confident that if you build a group of friends around this, it will stay there for you and support those friendships. And that like, if you, it's games that give you enough to to talk about and think about and, and rally around that, um, that part of tabletop role-playing games that we all kind of talk around the most difficult part of like, can I get a group of people in one place and will they all be interested in this one thing? Like mostly when you're reading a game, you're, you're not just reading for yourself. You're reading for that group of people. You're reading for that challenge. And I think you always, always, if you want to be making a game that attracts a large audience, you have to be building for that. And you have to be communicating for that. You have to be giving people tools to head toward community or to see that one where one could exist and i don't think you always need that i don't think every single game needs that but i think if you're if you're talking at scale it has to be part of your plan all the way through i had never really what you're saying makes absolute sense i 100 percent agree with it but i never really thought about the necessity of like that portion of trust like th- there's the trust that someone needs to get into the game but it's the same thing like when you watch a show on netflix you're like you know what, maybe I'll wait to see if there is a season two before I start season one because I don't want to get invested right. and then have a cliffhanger and, you know, firefly all over again. I've been scarred too many times, Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, yeah, anything you become a fan of, you're committing brain power to and you're hoping that the learning the the characters of Firefly and getting to know the the types of ship in Star Wars are going to lead to, you know, connections and friendships and communication you get to have. So I, and I find that beautiful. I don't think that's at all like a cynical marketing thing. I think that's no. just like, it's a, it's a really awesome part of what like being a fan of something is and what being, being invested in something is. And I think we've probably all in our lives experienced like uh, something you found really amazing, stopping, not being a part of your life anymore because you cannot find anybody to connect <laughs> with about it. Like at some point yeah. when you're a kid or whatever. And, and so trying to build around that and trying to build support structures for that, I think is so, so important. I love, that's such a great idea for like it's such a great takeaway for anyone who like wants to build a game is that you should be building the community as quickly as like as soon as you're starting to build a game start building that community so that there is a group of people who can like play it and get excited about it and continue to like kind of propagate this thing as long as as long as your game needs it like because I think there are lots of people making really really solid games that don't need it that community to be around them for those games to survive and be meaningful. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to say every single game that you ever make needs a discord, but I think people already talk about this. They talk about needing missions uh, or like wanting adventures and stuff like packaged with games. Mostly I think what people are gesturing toward when they talk about that stuff is this, it's just like, you need a reason for people to feel confident that they can keep circling that watering hole. (laughs) Yeah. Was that always a goal for you guys in setting out to make this game? Did you know that you wanted to go for that scale of this is a game that I want to fulfill that promise of it'll still be here in a couple of years. It'll still be providing those that friendship and those connections and something you wanted to support long term, something you wanted to scale big. Was that was that always the goal? Like when you set out to uh, 
um, maybe not before the Delta test, but once you started going and we're thinking, okay, this is going to be a Kickstarter. Was that a goal? I would say absolutely. I mean, yeah. in in the the title of my response here is that Triangle Agency is the game I've always wanted. You know, we, <laughs> like we've been building this thing because we wanted to see it it exist, and so for that reason, yes, I want. Obviously, I want to believe that it's here for everybody for the long haul. But that's you know also because <laughs> I've I've been dreaming and plotting and and you know loving it for years. I would say that the most concrete like de decision point that's related to that idea of like caring for and curating a person's experience or a community's experience playing the game is something that we call out in the Kickstarter that this game is designed for a set campaign. It's like medium, short to medium arcs that, you know, we are transparent with you, the audience, like this can last for 30 years if you want it to. But you will. We are building for you a satisfying narrative experience after, you know, 10 to 30 play sessions. Yeah. And I, I want to add to that a little bit because Sean's exactly right. That's the thing is like a blessing and curse of both of our approach to this project is that we wanted it to be big where we could. But I think that our expectation and like what we were building towards and how we were communicating about it or how we were approaching community was in reaction to what we saw. So like... This whole project started, I've said this a couple times, because I made a logo one day and put it online and was like, this is a neat idea for a game, huh? And like, I got enough response to that like logo and to the vibe that we were like, okay, let's put a little more time into this. And at every step, there was a version of that. There was like, okay, we're going to do everything we can to make this look cool and be cool to this point. And then we're going to see if people are are giving us that back. And we were always ready to, if we needed to, like pivot or adjust or rescale even down to this kickstarter like obviously it went way better than we planned and like way better than we ever expected and we tried to we were trying to match that but even up to that point it was still a conversation by the time the kickstarter was launching we were pretty sure we had a small pretty solid audience we had people who were playing the delta test we knew people were excited we had people on that pre-launch page but even then it was still a, a conversation a back and forth and i think that it's it's as much as it would be fun to be able to say like, oh yeah, and we were 100% rewarded for committing a thousand percent to making the biggest <laughs> game ever. I think that like, <laughs> like we're not going to do that even again. Like we're, we're not going to go into the next one saying that either. And I don't, I don't think anybody should. And, and our approach to the game and our budget for this game and everything has scaled at every point to what we were seeing reflected back at us. I do want to start pivoting over towards the Kickstarter. This isn't a metric by which you should measure anything, but the Kickstarter raised $379,000. A huge <laughs> amount of money for this game. You guys, uh, additional uh, tiers and stuff left and right because it was so well done. I do want to ask this question before we kind of dive into why we think this Kickstarter was so good and kind of pick your brains on it. When you launched this Kickstarter, what was your like dream of dreams number that you thought you were going to get? Like, like, was this actually yeah. the thing? Was this actually like a mind blowing number? Or did you think like in the back of your head, you know what? I think this is at 379,000. That actually feels right. I can give you exact numbers even. And I don't think it's embarrassing to say. Yeah, I think it? that that our what we thought we could confidently reach if we worked very hard was around 60,000. Based on looking at other things that had been that had been coming out at the time and looking at our goals of how many we wanted to print, that was also our goal was we were like getting to 60,000 would have would be 
not just that we can make it, which we could have done at 10 and which we were ready to do, but that we can make it, we can do everything we want, and we can have some copies to like make it a little bit of a store and like move forward with the game. 60,000 was like a was like a big solid mark for us. The dream number was like 150. And 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 anytime we looked at other games who had done really well or games that we really liked, it was always this thing of like, well, of course, we're not going to be a wander home. So we need to think about what is like our in-between that we can be happy with, right? right. And and the the big the big one where we were like, wow, this will mean this will mean like our next year is completely changed for sure. And maybe beyond that was like a one was like 150. And obviously we we blew past that in a big way. But 60, 60 was the one I thought we were gonna be fighting for. Um and like really trying to really, really reach. Like there's a whole conversation to be had about Kickstarter and Kickstarter goals and then expectations, but 60 was the point where we were like, all right, that's a business. We're designers. <laughs> Let's <Right>. really do it. <laughs> but again, that's because the scale of the game. It's if it, I don't think everybody needs to hit that. I don't think 60,000 means you're a designer. I just I just want to get out ahead of that because I'm I I feel very strongly that if we had made 10,000, we still would have made the game and we still would have loved it and we would still have a team of people we really liked. Well, I, I think it's money is is a convenient metric because it's a it's a number, it's a scoreboard you can kind of use for whatever. But knowing that what your actual goal was, what the dream was and what you got, I think is a like that relative metric is helpful. Because if, you know, if someone out there, if their dream goal is like $250 to make a game, then like using some of the things that you guys did so well in this Kickstarter, I think could help them maybe get to those like higher tiers of their scale of this type of thing. The 80s are over. And you're not kids anymore. Now is a much darker time. Something happened to you and you got touched by the weird and it made you wild and it made you powerful. This is the world of The Lost Bay, a suburban gothic RPG. A fever dream set in 1990X and inspired in equal parts by dark fantasy, horror classics, and the 90s indie culture. After years of development and thanks to the feedback and support of a community of early enthusiasts, The Lost Bay is coming to Kickstarter, featuring a full rulebook and complete setting designed by Eco, kick-ass art by Evangeline Gallagher, killer maps by Strega Wolf Vandenberg, and six additional modules by some of the coolest designers in the indie scene. So go to thelostbayrpg.com to be notified on launch. That's thelostbayrpg.com. I also want to say, in case somebody's listening casually, something that was a kind of a surprise to me of what we planned was like, you have to always look at Kickstarter numbers and then reduce by about 20% just as magic disappearing math and then reduce by probably another like 10 or 15 for things like uh, the actual production of the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and the so by the time you look at a Kickstarter number, a lot of the time, the actual number that's getting to people getting to creators themselves is like much lower than what you look at. So I, I recommend everybody kind mm -hmm. of do some research into that, especially if you are backing a lot of Kickstarters to like understand how that works and why. And that applies at all scales as a yes. as a all, fellow crowdfunder <laughs> at a smaller scale that that, that applies <laughs> at all scales. And also I'll note um just to hammer home your point Caleb about 
you don't need to raise $60,000 to be a game designer. If you make a game, you're a game designer. So like you guys were a game designer when you made the game designers when you made the Delta test back right. in November and mm -hmm. and anybody who throws a game on itch I'm happy to call a game designer. Just want to throw that out there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just realized I had casually said that, but uh, I was talking more about how I look <laughs> at myself than how I look at the world. Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel like that. I remember having those conversations, and and that was in the context of we like like do we still have a company at this point, like or do we dissolve an LLC? <laughs> like we are game designers incorporated. Right. Is 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 how I is my memory of that. Yeah. Talking about, you know, expectations going in, another thing I remember fretting about, for me, I put the the money number just totally out of my head because there was no way I, I knew there was no way I was going to be able to regulate my emotions about it. <laughs> um, but I remember being so, so impressed and appreciative of the number of backers as it mm. went up because I remember staring at that number on the pre-save page uh, as it was in the two digits and then it hit the three digits that floored me and seeing the actual number of backers go up you know along that same trajectory i felt very frankenstein voice it lives about all of that <laughs> as we watched like exactly that it's so good oh yes yes <laughs> yeah but that's also a metric like i can visualize i don't know if i could visualize five thousand people and but i can visualize a few hundred <laughs> in your head <laughs> and they're all full, full accurate color. <laughs> they're, yes, I'm rendering them right now. <laughs> My brain has overheated. <laughs> Too many voxels. <laughs> Quick practical question for folks who are maybe setting up a Kickstarter. How did you find that that literal number of like pre-saving to like day one backers? Did that was that like a good converter for day one backers in your opinion? Like, should people is that something that in your opinion Kickstarter folks should focus on is that pre-save backer number in a very practical sense no no um no i think i think you i think it's very useful for some things like i said seeing it and seeing it go up is a is a clear thing we could track that's like okay people on twitter are excited about it <laughs> you know because that was right. where we were mainly posting like that was where we were communicating with people um but in terms of our actual like people who like back to the campaign day one, like a lot of them weren't those people. A lot of those people were people who were supporting us to get the number bigger and who are our friends who then didn't back until the last day even. There are, there's some math that we were told that I kept in mind, which was that like, oh gosh, what was the number for that one? I want to say that that several people have told me 20% of that number will be day one backers. Mm. Our day one was much higher than that, but I and I don't have exact numbers on who came from that and who didn't, but that is because like a big amount of our day one backers and our backers for the whole thing came from advertisements. So that pre-launch page was like a lot of the people who are now on our Discord and a lot of people we were talking about and talking with in the community at first. But from that point forward, the bulk of our backers came from Kickstarter itself, like people surfing Kickstarter, and then Twitter and Twitter adjacent, and then advertisements were like the three big ones. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that when I first encountered any tell of Triangle Agency, I assumed it was like I just had a huge gap in my knowledge because like from one day to the next, it was just ubiquitous. But when Elliot was putting out Project Echo and I was kind of like helping him with that process or when we were putting out our, our die series for My First Dungeon, which was an actual play we did, we worked pretty hard on trying to, you know, have kind of that similar like critical mass of 
people talking about the game or the show kind of at one time to get general interest in the show. And I think you guys did that way better than we did. <laughs> like just phenomenally better. Well, my question for you is how how far ahead of time did you start working on that? Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> at least for for Project Echo, I will say that I did not start marketing um early enough is is my And I, I would say for the for the die series it was probably like a month and a half was like when we mm -hmm. like it was for like the start of like sending out press kits and stuff like that. So we so press kits we didn't make until pretty late, but we started booking and scheduling recordings for things three months in advance. So we we started in December talking to like different podcasts we already liked, streamers who we liked, and reaching out to some people very like personally that I had like been a fan of in the community for a while and kept an eye on for the, you know, several years I'd been kind of a casual member of the TTRPG community or for most of my time as a professional GM, I'm not like engaging in discourse online, but I'm watching everybody, you know, so I, I right. was in it for a while. So reached out to a ton of those people starting. It was a mix. Some of it, like I said, this plus one EXP one came from a communication like on the lead up to the Delta test. And then once we had the Delta test, that was like the thing we could hand to anybody. And I started doing it as soon as it existed. I was like, we have a Kickstarter. Here's when we're planning on doing it. It's going to be in March uh, was the original plan. And then that ended up shifting. So actually, yeah, I say, actually, we started six months in advance is what happened. <laughs> we started three months in advance of what we thought the Kickstarter was going to be. And then realized pretty quickly we wanted to do more than we were going to be able to do in that time. And then started shifting. So like I had my first conversation with uh, Jeff Stormer from Party of One at PAX in December for our release in June. And I recommend, especially for podcasts, like y'all know, like you have to do, you have to edit it. You have to have a lot of lead time. You often are booking out guests several, like a long way in advance. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to get people to cover your game at exactly a specific time, the best thing you can do for them is talk to them way ahead of time right. um, so that they can easily lock that in. So that's, that's like the big one. It's just, we just reached out um, one at a time um, to people when they had a lot of time <laughs> to think about it. <laughs> and I would say it may not be applicable to you and your game or whatever it is that you're trying to promote, but as Caleb pointed out, having the Delta test was huge. Having a thing that was like, this can be our content. Like this can be the thing that I'd like to bring to your show so that you can share with your audience. I imagine opened a lot of doors. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I feel like one of the other things that maybe contributes to this like ubiquity feeling that Brian's describing of on Twitter is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you guys brought together a really large, very talented team of people in this space. What What is the total number of folks that before <laughs> Stretch Goals that were part of the team? Yeah, yeah. So before Stretch Goals, there was the two of us, six artists, and then 10 additional writers for The Vault. Oh, wow. Not all the artists were like super active in the TTRPG scene prior, but everybody that we brought on for the vault is a writer that you can find doing work already in the scene and who's done some really amazing stuff, even in our specific genres of corporate horror um, or just horror generally. In talk about community and talk about the TTRPG community, I feel like that is one thing that can be a boon to a project is when you work with other really talented, really cool people in the space who are excited about the game that they're helping you make. And then that creates this feeling of like, again, ubiquity. I don't mean to overuse that word, but that <laughs> feeling of like, oh, everybody's kind of involved. Everybody I like, or like a lot of people I like are kind of involved in this game. So yeah, I feel like that is that is also a big boon. I'm curious how you came to that initial team and how you sort of built that team and then how you expanded beyond it. 
and then I also there's another question within that, but we can save it. Is like I want to talk about like art as an early investment because that was clearly such a big thing. But maybe first we talk about how you how you kind of built this initial team. Yeah. Yes. So I guess I'll focus on probably the more useful one for this part, which is the vault writers themselves, that team of people. A lot of who they are are people who I was a really big fan of <laughs> and who I've known for a while and really liked and had communicated with on Twitter or had met at various points and whose work I really appreciated. And then I built the core team, like the first couple of people out of that. I say core, but there's no actual core in terms of the design. The a couple of people. And then those people, I said, hey, I'm sure there are people I'm missing. Like, I know y'all are like names that some people are going to recognize that I recognize and really, really love. Who are people that you would recommend that maybe I wouldn't notice automatically? And then those people gave me their recommendations, did further research and read a bunch of their stuff. And that is how we ended up at the full team. And there was a there was a conscious effort on our part that we were like, because just like what you're saying, part of the goal of working with a team of people and having people write like a mission for your game is because what we talked about with trust. It's about like getting a bunch of people to see like, oh, these people that I like are also involved. Like there's an element of that. But then we wanted to make sure like we were picking people who are at various stages of their careers, who are have different levels of audience, who um, we think will be amazing at making these things, but that like we also felt pretty early that it, part of our responsibility was not like this whole team can't just be like, now we're trying to earn marketing. <laughs> you know, it's sure. got to be like, who do we who do we like? Who do we think is going to do it? And who can we bring on who is at a level with us where working on this will help them too? everybody. So that was that was at least my thoughts. I can't remember if there's anything else that I'm not mentioning. <laughs> just just as a real quick side note, can you just uh, tell for anyone who isn't aware, what is the vault? Yeah, 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 yeah. So alongside the game, we're releasing 12 missions that are compiled in a, a separate book that comes with it. Um, each of those missions will be playable at your table. Triangle Agency in general is meant to be played as like a series of like one-offs where each mission kind of takes you one session. But I also have run many of uh, the missions that are going to be the style of mission that's in this book and have it take three or four nights of playing. So it could be a lot. But our our like vision of it was like, if you and your friends are playing once a month, this will get you through a year of this game and get you through approximately like a full campaign with some wiggle room of extra time in case you want to follow your own plots or somebody has good ideas. But they're designed not to be a like a campaign in themselves, because a lot of what actually constitutes a campaign in Triangle Agency is what you and your friends do in between the gameplay missions, because there's a, there's like a downtime phase. But it is intended to be a full campaign in the sense that it will give you all the content you need to bridge your group from story to story. And there's that trust that you were talking about that like that you were talking about building for certain games of a certain scale is that feels like that the huge piece of that having that you could play a mission every month, be able to play this game for at least a year just using what's here. And that changed the plan for how we were going to handle that changed all the way up until like a few days before the Kickstarter launched. Like we had gotten we had even were like, oh, I hope people want this. Like maybe we should just say that it's going to be like a YRO, like we're going to cheap, like print it all paperback, like really cheap. And then it wasn't until we saw the number building on the pre-launch page and on our newsletter that we were like, okay, this is risky, but to like make it simpler, like let's just say we're gonna make a hardcover and we can make it. We'll be able to print it. It will just we're just deciding that if it if it bombs and we just barely hit our campaign, we're not gonna make any money, but we will make all of the books. Um and that was like a that was like one of the very last decisions we made was like, okay, fine, it's just gonna be hardcover. And we're gonna commit to this because it was always part of the campaign. It was always part of our goal, but we were scared. 
we were scared that fully committing to it, you know, pre-stretch goal would be a problem. But I, I think it was the right choice for us ultimately to commit to it. We talked about visualizing people. I do just want to put a, a quick like visualization in your head. If it, it was 4,887 backers, Hamilton is at the George Gershwin Theater, which is 1319 <laughs> people. So you got three and a half Hamiltons. Wow. Okay, that's what I'm saying. That is a great way to imagine it, honestly. <laughs> Very helpful. Yeah. Three sold out Hamilton. Three you sold out book. Hamilton. As, as a Manhattanite, you're speaking a language that I'm very comfortable with. And, and a Mary Hamilton to you as well. There you go. There you go. Um, on, the, on the subject of the vault, um, another part that is building that bridge of trust is that given that Triangle Agency is a completely new game that uses a completely new system, most of the people who buy this book will not know anybody who has ever written a miss it mission that takes place in this game. They'll, they might not know where to look to find an example. And so being able to say to them, look, we have 12 different people who've each taken a stab at it. Take a look is, is another part. Like from the very, from the very beginning, we're, we're holding your hand mm. through to the end of that year. And I think there's a there's another lesson in the vault that I want to pull out for folks, which is this idea of what you were talking about before, Caleb, of you found these people in the community whose work you admired and you and you reached out to them. And I think that that's a thing that like when you're making your first project that you're thinking about crowdfunding, you may have that feeling of like, I can't reach out to X person because they're like too cool or like even if they're not like huge. Like I, I know I had this feeling when I was making Project Echo and was outreaching to uh, Sam Lee, who guest wrote on the on the book, and feeling like like Sam and I had interacted a very little bit, and I was like intimidated because they're an extremely cool designer whose work I admire. But just like if you're a designer and you want to work with cool people, all they are is a, a message away, an email away, and like most of the time, if you're making a cool project that you are putting the work into and you're serious about, people will want to work with you on it if they're excited about it. Yes. And I, I think that especially if, if you're the type of person who's listening to this podcast, who's like invested in the TTRPG scene, then you know that like the group of people who are talking about it online and who are like communicating and like and like becoming friends in, in spaces that have been on Twitter and, and may move. It's a pretty small fraction of the, the tabletop role playing space and a pretty closely connected group of people compared to like everybody that's playing a tabletop role-playing game in a, in a given year and so like for the most part anybody who is like who you know well enough to be intimidated by is probably not that far from you <laughs> uh is kind of what i would say it's especially fun now that we've like we both know sam and have, have had sam on the show before sam lee is like the sweetest person in the world <laughs> oh absolutely it's, yeah. it's very fun to think of them as intimidating now knowing that like oh yeah this is the nicest person who would love to talk about your project yeah. I will say if there's anything I can, if there's a way to crystallize it into advice for how to do that, though, it's the same as my media reach out advice. It is that like everybody is excited for something that's going to be fun and is going to help them too. And so the faster in your communication and the clearer you can be upfront in saying like, here is what this thing is. Here is how I think it will benefit you. Here is how I think it'll benefit me. Like, would you like to do this? The faster right. you can get those pieces of information to them in your first message, the better that it's going to go. And I think you guys also had you guys also had the kind of down payment of trust by saying, "Here's the delta test. Like, this is already a thing. It's going to be bigger, but look at what it already is." And that's like immediately showing people. I've already invested time and energy, and this is the intentionality I'm bringing to it. I'm I'm serious about doing this. We're serious about doing this. 
And seeing that immediately puts, I mean, the second you open the Delta test, you're like, oh, yeah, these people are going to be great. This game looks cool. You don't even have to read anything. You just flip through it. And you're like, yeah, this is, I know this will be worth my time. Doing whatever you can in whatever, you know, medium you're working in when you're reaching out to people of letting people know right off the bat, here's what the commitment is. Here's how it can help us. And also, I'm serious. It's going to be worth your time. I promise. Check this out. <laughs> Check out this cool thing. I, I will also say uh, that you like if you're sitting here listening and sweating bullets because you don't have your own Delta test, like we we were adding people to our team before the Delta test was ever released. You know, yeah. like uh, Nathan Rhodes, that art is all through the Delta test. The Delta test could not exist without his contributions. And so it's it, sometimes you don't have to have a Delta test to turn to somebody and say, like, I made this. You are going to love it. Please help. <laughs> <laughs> and the passion means a lot. Yeah. Well, the most important thing, I mean, yes, I think people can read passion. I think people can read if you're honest. But the most important thing is the specificity. Like, don't reach out to somebody who makes a podcast if you haven't listened to their podcast. Like, don't reach out to an artist to make stuff for you if you wouldn't be happy with, like, approximately anything that you've already seen them make. Like, they need, you have to do the work ahead of time. If it's your project and if you're asking people to come with you on faith, you have to do the work ahead of time to make sure that that bridge is built like every single brick on the way to them that it can be before they are put in charge of any of the bricks at all. Because you want them to feel like, oh, this is so, so easy. With with the case of Nathan, like part of what I did was like reach out and say, hey, I'm working on this project. Your artwork is already amazing and I could literally license it. So if that's what you want to do, we can do that. But the what I think would be cool is if you would work on me, work with us on this corporate horror game I don't think your work is corporate, but I think that if we nudge it in a particular direction, it will read as like twisted corporate enough. And I sent that like that was like my first pitch was like, hey, you, you can answer this or not. And they got back to us like very quickly and we, we talked through it and it ended up amazing. But I think a huge part of it was that part was being able to be very specific, tell people what you like about them, tell them how it will help them and give them a, a budget off the bat is always good, too. <laughs> yeah, budget budget certainly helps. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of Nathan Rhodes. I want to circle back to that question I sort of previewed earlier. Art was a clear investment of this game, like in a big, big way. And I'm and I'm curious, like how much art was invested in before launch and like how much was like planned for depending on how the Kickstarter goes and like why, from your perspective, is is art such an important investment and the variety of artists you hired such an important investment? Yeah. I have a lot of answers to that, but I, I think I, I fear that I would go on very long. Do you have anything you want to say before I do that, <laughs> Get out in front of it real quick. Yeah, yeah let me just alt-tab to our budget spreadsheet. <laughs> you don't need to, if, if you don't want to get into specific numbers, I'm more curious, like, how much art did you feel like you needed to get going? Um, yeah. Is that sort of like, what was the, like, minimum viable art? for this game in your in your minimum mind. viable art yes <laughs> okay so i guess I, okay i'm gonna do it i'm gonna start the train i'm gonna so zooming it. out zooming out all the way back coming back to the conversation that we've had already about like aiming at what particular scope of game you want to make and like what scale you want to make um and then picking like do you want this to be a game that people are bringing a lot of context to or do you want it to be a game where they can come to it and get all the context they need before they leave and the like number one tool you have for any audience member to hit that second one is going to be visual art. It's faster for people to interpret tone, for people to understand subject matter. It is often able to evoke a feeling in seconds that like 
you might be able to get by having them read a page of your work, but that requires them to read a page of your work. And often you are you are hoping to hit them with a feeling right away so that they understand they can get the promise from you within seconds of like, oh, this is what this is going to give me if I invest time in it. And I do not think the art has to be ex always the kind of art that we're doing with like super heavy, like uh, unique illustration work. I don't think it has to be, it doesn't have to be 100% bespoke. You know, there's a lot of people doing really incredible stuff with like photo bashing and, and stock photos that are being edited really well. But I do think that the final product of your work needs to convey a uniqueness uh, and a specificity that helps it stand out and also communicates your game very clearly. And so the people we selected and the amount that we invested in it were because, A, part of why I wanted to make a game was so that we could have lots of very cool pictures of our ideas in it. <laughs> and, and B, so that every single piece we got was doing a, a job, was going to give us another tool in our tool belt for showing a different kind of person and saying like, this is also for you. This is another feeling this game can give. And so our initial plan, our initial set of art that we purchased for the Delta test, it was because like, we were like, okay, we're not going to be advertising this really. We just want people once they're in here to really like it. So we're going to commission Nathan to give us a bunch of art that is like, going to help you feel really in it and like help you feel the tone really well once you're reading. And then for the campaign, it was about like picking a little bit from every artist we wanted to work with, asking them to do a couple of pieces that showed a range, that showed a scope of what the game could encompass. And then now for the final book, uh, a lot of our like stretch goal art, part of why we were a little bit secretive about what some of those pieces literally were, was because now the art is about once people are there, once people are in the game, we want every piece to color and change what you're reading and like and, and, and help you interpret it um, once you're there. So the the final choices, what we're so lucky to get to do now is like commission a ton of new art that's going to help boost the text uh, once mm. you're there. Doesn't need to be advertisements. Okay, I think that's, <laughs> I think that covers a lot of. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think you, yeah, I think you got a lot out. Just to answer part of the shadow of your initial question of like, why invest in art in the first place? Or, you know, how, how do you decide whether art is a priority to invest in? Is because in a, in a very real way, that's one of the major levers that we could pull. You know, when we think about mm. adding written content to the books, Caleb and I could just, you know, go into hibernation for five years to write content. Like that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's in its own way a budget concern, but strictly speaking, we don't have to throw thousands of dollars at ourselves to, to make the book beefier in that way. And Caleb, you mentioned that you don't necessarily have to, what, what you want to do is give a sense of the book, like a visual stimulus that's quicker to read. You don't have to necessarily commission original art. Ellie, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Moonlight on Roseville Beach, I'm pretty sure was all, I believe all public domain art. Yeah. All public domain art. And that book is one of the most interesting layout books I've seen in the past like year or two. So there are ways to do it. And all it is is about like conveying that tone. Yes. Yeah. And like, I think there are ways that people who are really, really good at layout and people who are really, really good at marketing could do it without some of the images that we commissioned. But because I really wanted them to be there in part because I want to see some cool stuff. And then because like, <laughs> like we are not like we are not marketing specialists. We're learning as we go. And like I was I was trying to in the times that I was uh, at all in control of it or like when Sean and I would have conversations about who to bring on and and what exact pieces we needed. So much of it was about being really honest and digging into like 
what have I responded to? Like, what mm. have I personally literally bought and why? And when I look at that, when I look at my own history, like art is a huge, huge part of it. As much as I love design and I like, I care a lot about game design. If we're talking about what's on my shelf and like what I have, I have kickstarted, art is a huge part of that. And as soon as I was honest about that, it was like, okay, then we really do need to like put money into this because I have a really, really strong piece of personal, I consider myself the biggest fan of this. And if I want to get more like people like me in here, then I need to pay attention to what I react to. I, I always put it as like, I may have a list of favorite movies, but what are the movies I've actually watched over and over again? Those are clearly the ones that I actually care about. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think we as a small like indie and like like hobby professional line industry have like a kind of complicated relationship to art as far as I can tell, because a lot of people who are designers are not necessarily incredible visual artists and it can feel like this big challenge that's just like can't who who can i trust to work with me on this and and especially if you don't have like money ready to go it can be very difficult to like figure out how to make those connections or figure out how to make your work seen and i don't really have a big solution to that but i i do think like at least coming at your work with an understanding of like what what could boost it? What could make it better? And how much money you would need and where you would go to who? Like, is a good thing to have as part of your plan in the event that a lot of people respond really well to your design. I'm a big proponent of the, um, if you're a designer worried about how to fill your book with art, like make bad art yourself. Make quote unquote <laughs> bad art because, you know, bad art is not a word I, I really like to throw around or two words. <laughs> but like, Figure out the thing you like to do, bringing like a pencil to paper or a photo into Photoshop or GIMP or whatever, and and just like fill your book with with uh, whatever you can make. You know what I mean? Like, I think don't let the pressure of good art or quote unquote professional art like stop you from putting, you know, scribbles all over your book. Like you can make a very cool game where you just put scribbles, um, you know, scattered around the pages. Or whatever else helps you fit that vibe. I mean, back to right. the Delta test, the whole general manager's toolkit is a, a, a masterclass in, well, we didn't hire a visual artist, strictly speaking, but just, just saw really pushed the boundaries of what was possible with layout. Yeah. Yeah. And I say we, and I would be remiss not to name check uh, Michael. Yes. Yeah. So I was going to say, when you talked about a visual artist, like part of why the layout in the Delta test is so striking and so specific is because my husband, Michael Schillingberg, is an amazing like designer who does like incredible, incredible work in apps and games. And it's like a very real big time actual designer who I'm married to. And it was such a fun process for me because what layout really ultimately is, I think, for a, a tabletop role playing game, it's like the combination of like, like UI and storytelling. And so getting to like sit down next to my husband and have him help me make cool UI elements that then I can tell a story with was like an incredible process that like Michael, I'm so glad that you brought this up because I, I think it's appropriate to our Kickstarter page too. Michael is the thing that I have like the hardest time giving advice about to other people because I'm like, I don't know. Like I got so lucky to have a designer <laughs> sure. living in my house. And like if I had, if we had tried to, if we had reached out to Michael Schillingberg as like a person like out in the world on his own that we didn't know it would have like doubled our budget in a way probably so it's like it's hard to yeah would have more than doubled our budget yeah <laughs> he's he uh yeah he's amazing so yes i think leaning into your skills because again like michael was there to help make 
cool triangles give me some like templates for things I could play with. But then at the end of the day, it was me having never made layouts before spending hours and hours and hours, like turning those elements into the game. Right. And so figuring out what you're good at, focusing on that and continually rescaling and reapproaching based on the feedback you're getting and how you're feeling about it, how you're feeling about it in the broad sense, not how you're feeling about it in that second, because you're going to feel bad a lot of the time while you're making something. <laughs> and you might know, you know, you might have your own version of Michael in your life, a friend or a partner who has a talent or skill that can help you in some way. So like, that's also a thing to think about when you're, when you're working in D and you know, who are the friends who would be really cool to have involved, um, who have a really cool particular skill. To your point of, if you're at a loss for how to fill your book, just make some scribbles or make some doodles or make what you would like to see in whatever way you can. And I just also wanted to point out that could be layout. That could be words. You know, you could try some poetry. You could try, you right. know, a little vignette in a different style. Whatever it is, whatever is in your toolkit that you think helps the vibe also could contribute to making your thing cool and unique and pull people in. Absolutely. There's a but designer. Also the power of friendship. <laughs> yes. And the power of friendship. Oh. It's always the power of friendship. And the power of marrying Michael. <laughs> right. I recommend that if you can make it happen. We all, that's the key takeaway for this episode is marry Michael. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you've done what maybe some people would call the easy part of crowd, crowdfunding, <laughs> though I would not agree as a fellow crowdfunder to, with that uh, designation. But now you have to fulfill, you have to deliver the game. How are you approaching this big process of fulfillment? And what does this success allow you to do in that fulfillment that you didn't think you were going to be able to do before. Namely, the thing I'm kind of hinting at is, is now Haunted Table a certified formed game company that's going to be sticking around and making other stuff? Yes. Yeah, the answer to that question is yes. And we had made our actual like literal company a few days before the Delta test came out because we knew it was going to come out and money was going to start collecting. And so we were like, okay, well, since the two of us have been working on this and we also are trying to do revenue sharing with everybody and we're trying to like build from the ground up, something that is like at least prepared for success, even if we don't know if it's going to happen. That that had already happened, but preparation for fulfillment. We did, uh, leading up to the campaign and building the campaign, talked to just like so many people, like asked so many people about how their campaigns had gone, how fulfillment had gone, talked to people who handled fulfillment and like saw if we wanted to work with them. Um, I have to specifically shout out because of uh, how much <laughs> uh, help that they were as Logan Dean, who has done a lot of uh, cool smaller RPGs, including the company, gave some incredible advice to me um, over this process and pointed me in the direction of people who could give great advice. And so, what we did for like everything from December to the campaign launching, like even up to a week before, was ask people about every step of the process, make a list about all the stuff we have to do, and figure out how we wanted to handle certain things and and believe them <laughs> like that, that, uh, so much of so much of what went well is because people would say something that would, would make me a little mad but i would believe them you know like mm. uh like when we we there was a point where the campaign almost included like a version where you could put it inside of an actual briefcase so we started doing research into that and we found ways where it could theoretically be possible but then we had a couple of of people be like 
this would be very cool and it would ruin your life. Like your next year would be a nightmare because it's it's going to add all of this stuff that you don't know to think about. Like here's an example for anybody listening. That sounds very cool. So the briefcase has to come from a different place from where you're manufacturing the game. So at that point, you have to pay somebody to ship the briefcase on top of the shipping you're doing for the game. And then you have to pay somebody to put all of the pieces of the game into the briefcase. And then when you ship it, because now you're a briefcase-shaped box instead of just like a box or book-shaped box, it potentially triples or quadruples the price of the original thing and adds a lot of weight. That is all a series of things that like I just wouldn't have thought very hard about <laughs> um, until I was asking people. And so we did a lot of that, a lot of asking for advice. And I would say, just like you were talking earlier about not being scared, like just just check in with people, people who've done similar things, people who have succeeded in ways that you want to succeed, like, like just ask them. That's how we got to where we got to. There's a, a segment on the show we do that's called That Ones Are Still Fun, where we ask people to talk about like a failure in their professional TTRPG career and like what you learned from it. I'd like to kind of ask that question with a, with a bit of a twist on it, because if you guys were originally thinking of this as like a $10,000, $60,000, $150,000, like is the dream campaign, and now you're at 300 and some odd thousand dollars, I've found that the bigger my projects get, the more I learn about myself of what I'm good at and what I'm most certainly not good at. <laughs> so I'm curious, what, what did each of you learn that you are not good at? And how did you fix the team around you to compensate for that? Yeah. Ooh. So my, a big one for me that is like a tough one to get rid of because it was so nice to get a lot of compliments about it in the Delta test was the layout. It was like, I spent a lot of time on it to make it what I wanted it to be, but... It took forever. It took forever. It was like it was like many, many more hours were spent making it look good than were spent writing the literal text. Not designing the game, but for but actually drafting the text was much shorter and more fun <laughs> than sitting and fiddling things around. It was a different kind of work and it was a fun kind of work. And I really appreciated having that level of control. But the more we looked at the like scale of this, like the, whenever we started making some money, and I was like, you know what? The thing that will most likely ruin our schedule, the thing that will probably get in our way the most is me. Because if we're also making all this other stuff and then I have to do this layout and I've already seen that that the Delta test like took me from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed for like two or three weeks in a row, I cannot do that again. So now we have Ben Mansky, who's an amazing layout uh, artist and designer doing the pages for us. And we're still going to be involved to make it tell the same story, but I'm very, very confident Ben understands what we're doing. And, and throughout this process, Ben has been a friend who I've talked to about a lot of what we're doing and how we're doing it. So it was a very easy thing. As soon as we had the money for it, it was like, please, please help me. <laughs> yeah, I would say in general, um, the, the incredible success of our Kickstarter campaign has helped us, A, as Caleb just described, we have each had enough self-awareness to know what, how our money would best be spent in order to become a force multiplier. And Ben Mansky, and a, a perfect example of that. Also bringing on Will Jobst to edit the, the Vault Mission Collection. A huge, Caleb just we, did a we, we love Will here. We, we yes. love, we love Will here. Well, love. Will's great. And also like, like, that was one of those things where it was like, I guess we'll find out if we can edit a team of 12 people. Like, I guess we'll just learn if we can, <laughs> you know? And so being, yeah, so hitting that point of being able to go like, okay, we can bring on someone who has done this many times. <laughs> right. Yeah. These things that not only we believe that we know are going to like bring a world-class talent to 
the product itself, but also we'll take that off of our plates so that we can focus on the things that we've already demonstrated that we know, the things that only we can do for this game to help us hit our creative goals and our commitments to all these people who've put their faith in us. All three Hamiltons. <laughs> all three, three Hamiltons. Three and a work. half Hamiltons. <laughs> for a now. month of Hamiltons. <laughs> I, I've, I've got a follow-up question to that of going from the Delta test, which was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Delta test was a significantly smaller team, right? Yes, that was me and Sean and then Michael's assistants and then um, Nathan Rhodes' art. That was the whole squad. I don't want to be. A, I don't want to forget somebody, but I think that's right. Well, Ryan Kingdom was still involved. Ryan came point. on as soon as the Delta test was done. Yeah, right after that, Ryan came on and started doing additional art. So going from Delta test to the full game, you're you're no longer directly involved with everything to the degree you were in the Delta test. Like you are delegating and you are like sharing vision and you are you know conducting the orchestra rather than playing every instrument. We now have over thirty people involved. <laughs> with that much of a multiplier, like how have you found the difference between? being, you know, super, like having your hands in every single piece of paper to conducting the orchestra, as it were. We're just now starting to see the start of that. Um, so it's hard to give a, a full answer because up until the campaign launched that, with the exception of having some artists doing additional artwork for it, all of the rest of the work for the campaign itself was still that same team of people. It was like me and Sean and Michael. So the actual process of creating the book now we are seeing the beginning of that we are seeing that and i will say that most of the way i feel about it is 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 fear in preparation of that you know of like being willing to set things aside and and being willing to trust the people you know are very good because you invited them to do this because they're very good but i i think we'll have a better answer for that probably in six months <laughs> we'll have you back then perfect <laughs> and i'm curious with the success what are your hopes now for the future of Haunted Table and like what's what's next? I mean, I know you've got a lot of work ahead of you on fulfillment, but uh, what are your hopes beyond that? I really like that as you guys considered that question, both of you kind of did a little like preparatory <laughs> dance for it. <laughs> it's my thinking yeah. dance. Um, we've we've already as part of our Kickstarter campaign, we announced a direct follow up to this project, and so that is a very prominent flag that we're planting about our goals and about our future. You know, I think the, for me, the goal is to continue to make games that people love, games that we want to see as, as long as we can retain our sanity. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think we, we have had a lot of conversations in this last month and in this last week, even trying to answer that exact question. But I think the, the big one that we've come to repeatedly is like, we're trying to move forward, embracing like what we are, like this success. But part of our structure is to try to funnel as much of that success directly to this team as possible. So like we have not built the company to grow hugely or exponentially. We have built it to attempt to reward people for spending time on a project and then keep people, keep people excited and making more than they even expect to make. That's our goal with anything we make. And we hope to approach our next project with the exact same lowered expectations and like specific goals as we approach Triangle Agency. Like we want our next thing to be something that is telling a specific story, is aiming at people who are going to like it, and is set up to succeed if it, if it can, but that we are still trying to aim for that bar of like, we just want to make one. We want to make one. We want to not get hurt. So we're going to try to stick to that as much as we can. Our goal is not to expand out hugely or to become 
like a a giant level publisher. Uh, not at all the goal, and and I think if it were the goal, it would be kind of embarrassing because our whole project is about <laughs> trying to talk about why that corporate structure is a bad idea. True. Um, yeah. <laughs> So our final question, another little segmented question, is uh, what are you bringing to the table? So I would ask for each of you to share a person, a game, a show, a resource, anything in the TTRPG space that you would recommend to our listeners right now. Listen, I'm sitting here in my truth, and the message that I want to signal blast is that uh, we are in a historic moment for the labor movement. And oh, the, hell yeah. And the WGA, oh, you can absolutely bring SAG, that to the table. And those are people who, if you have the ability to help, have been looking for help uh, by ways of signal boosting, like right now I'm doing. Uh, but also there are funds that you can donate to for people who are in those industries who have been impacted by the suspension of work. And in a very re real way, their struggle uh, impacts us all. And I encourage you to learn more about it if you uh, have only heard some headlines. And if you're looking for a very easy place to learn more about it, um, Carlos Cisco on Twitter is a WGA strike captain who also happens to be one of our vault writers. So I recommend you go uh, check out uh, his Twitter feed and uh, learn more about what's happening right now. He has a running uh, account that you can donate to that all just loops right back into like supplies on the ground. A perfect shout out in yeah. the, the realm of corporate horror, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we have actually, it's so funny that you say that too, because we've had to, there's in our Discord, because we have areas that are like open for role playing, like where people kind of role play, like being in the uh, agency itself. The, the stuff from the book has become kind of like inside jokes. And one of those repeated jokes that caught on, and it, I, every day I'm like, why is this the one? But it's funny, <laughs> is that people, people will like chastise each other for union activity. <laughs> and we've had to we've had to say more than once, like, just so everybody is 100 percent clear, like Haunted Table is extremely pro-union as high as I possibly can be on unions. But yes, part of the game, the game is all about the, our perspective on on like labor and corporations and stuff like that. And we tried to be very honest with it in every every step. But for me, my recommendation, I have a silly one. My silly one is just the my ride or die, the tool that has saved me for years. That is just a funny thing that everybody might know about already. It's the Roll Dice with Friends website. I don't know if you've been to Roll Dice with Friends. No. Simplest website ever. It is, it is just you type in a little chat room name. Everybody can go to the same chat room. And then you can just click on what dice you want to roll and it randomly generates the numbers for you. I just want to throw that out there. I don't know anything about them or what they have done, but they have saved my life for the past five years. <laughs> or what um, they have done. <laughs> I, have, yeah, what they have done. <laughs> I know nothing knows of what, what they're they've involved in. <laughs> as a result. But there's no ads, like there's nothing. It's just like a great uh, tool that as someone who has to, who most of my professional jamming has been with kids and none of them ever have any of their stuff with them, being able to be like, here's a website, it'll just do it. So highly recommended. Oh, yeah. It turns out Roll Dice with Friends is a signatory member of the AMPTP. No. They're all bummed. <laughs> no. Union, big union busters, actually. They're um, producing a lot of content for Netflix and uh, Quibi somehow. Uh, They're still doing Quibi stuff. Partnership with the Pinkertons on their site, actually. Oh, boy. <laughs> but the, so that's my, that's my silly one. And then I would also... I would recommend that you go down the list of vault writers and look at all the stuff they're making. Almost everybody on our team is like, is very much an active indie developer. We have a, a Kickstarter for Cassie Mothwin started today at time of recording, um, who's one of our yeah. writers. And um, people are 
because people are busy and making things. Benicia Valetti, I feel like, releases the game monthly. <laughs> and I'm always like, how <laughs> in the world fair. are you doing this? So I would I would go down that list and and buy something from each and every one of them if I were you, if I knew it was good for me. We will know. <laughs> we will know. We love ending a podcast with a threat. Yeah. <laughs> if you knew it was good for you, you'd go to rolldicewithfriends.com. Um, yeah. We will link rolldicewithfriends.com, the Vault Writers, as well as the Entertainment Community Fund and other uh, strike support resources in our show notes. And uh, Caleb, Sean, thank you so much for coming to the table. Do you want to tell people where they can find you? You can find me, C Zane H, on Twitter, CalebZaneHewitt.com. And then, but lately, I'm actually posting more often on co host. It is, in my opinion, the more fun one, but it is not a very professional feed. So if you're on co host and you want to see me <laughs> talk about what I'm writing in the most casual of terms and, and posting silly things, that's where to go. If you want to see active updates, Twitter is still probably the best place to see that. Um, and we have a newsletter, a newsletter that you should sign up for that will get our very direct messages to you sign up .hauntedtable.games. that's what it is that'll be yeah. linked as well <laughs> boom baby uh, you can find me Sean Ireland on Twitter at Sean Iceland hilarious Ireland yeah. was taken it's it. crazy because Iceland <laughs> is the green one it's, it's so weird crazy. yeah and I'm the red one <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes and we are also as haunted table on Twitter at haunted table you can join our discord discord.hauntedtable.games you might notice a theme. I'm going to name check a few more. Kickstarter, <laughs> our Kickstarter page. You can check out all the cool, fun art and work and words. Uh, our pre-order page is up and live. If you missed the action and still want to get in on Triangle Agency, it's a cool vibe and a chill hang. Cool vibe and a chill hang. Yeah. And if you want more gamey content, you can check out the 20-sided newsletter, the many-sided media discord. Both of those are linked in the show notes as well. Uh, rate, review, and follow Talk of the Table wherever you get your podcasts. And that's what the table is talking about. Bye, guys. Bye, Bye everybody. Thank you so much. If you're hearing this, that means you have listened to every last second of this episode. And that probably makes you a fan of this show. Well, if you're a fan and you like what we're doing and want to help others find it as well, then consider leaving us a five-star review over on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Getting more ratings really does help more people find the show, and reading your nice words about the things that we put out into the world makes us feel all warm and good inside, and we want more of those good, good feels. So head on over to your podcast player of choice and leave us a five-star review. Thanks.